So let's just get started. Good morning, Kim. Um, good morning. I have a question about uh, jicama. I've been growing it um, because you were talking about it so much. <laughs> How do I know when it's ready to harvest and it, it still hasn't bloomed yet? Um, jicama is like, you know, some other vegetables in that it doesn't truly ripen. It just gets bigger and bigger and bigger. And, uh, you know, you can, uh, it's kind of like sweet potatoes. You can harvest it at any size. Uh, when did you plant it? When did you get your seed planted? I think back in June. Okay. I suspect your jicama are probably, oh, bigger than tennis balls now. Some of them may be as big as softballs. So, um, I would encourage you, whenever you would like to enjoy some jicama, go ahead and dig at least one of them up and see what you have there. Now, if you want to collect your own seed so you don't have to, you know, buy or uh, scrounge around for seed next year, you need to leave at least one or two of them until they do bloom because each one of those vines is probably going to produce uh, 10 or a dozen seeds. So, Depending on how big your garden is, depending on how many hikama you want to grow, um, leave leave at least a couple of them uh, for a longer harvest period. Now they're gonna uh, the leaves still look good on the plants, don't they? The vines still look good. Um, yes and no. They have a few leaves that have started turning sort of brown. Oh well, they, you know, <laughs> welcome. <just> so <laughs> well, yeah, exactly. Exactly. Well, here's the thing. There is, at this point, there is absolutely no reason to dig them and store them. Um, what you can do is go out any day, any evening, any time that you think you would like to have, you know, some nice lime juice squeezed over some wonderful jicama. Go out and dig one up. Um, now, when we get to freezing weather, it will be important that any of them that are still in the ground that you do harvest them because if the ground gets real cold, they don't star, store in the ground. You know, some things like potatoes and a few other things, uh, as long as we're not just super wet, they can stay in the ground for a long, long time. But once we get to freezing weather, your jicama, you know, needs to be dug and harvested or until the vines die back, whichever comes first. So uh, about how many plants do you have? Oh, 10 maybe. Okay, go ahead and have one for dinner tonight or tomorrow night or whenever. And like I say, leave one, two, three, however many of them, figuring that each one is probably going to give you between 10 and 20 seeds when it does bloom. And what you're going to want to do is just be sure you leave that many plants until they bloom, until they produce the seed pods, until you get the seeds. But I, it, you can start harvesting them now, and a jicama tastes exactly the same whether it's, you know, as big as a tennis ball or as big as football. And um, so there, it, it's not a matter of ripening. It's just, uh, um, <laughs> I guess you might say size matters. <laughs> and it just right. depends on how much jicama, um, how much jicama you want. But uh, you can start harvesting any time you feel like harvesting, Kim. Okay. Um, so is there a certain time that they usually bloom? Like how long does it usually take for them? It usually, once we start getting into shorter days and longer nights, it's about time for them to start blooming. Um, yours are out in good sunlight, I trust. Oh, yes. Okay. Um, I would look for blooms on them any time. 
The blooms are not real showy. I mean, you'll definitely see them. They're sort of a lavender flower, but um, it's, you know, uh, they they will get around to it. Just be patient with them. But I believe that they are probably short-day bloomers because it seems to me like they always start blooming, you know, mid to late September, October, right on up till freezing weather. So uh, maybe they're a little late, but, you know, maybe they want just a hint of cool before they start blooming. Uh, <laughs> I really don't have an insight into exactly what triggers these things. And uh, mm-hmm. um, I think that we are on track to have the hottest September ever, which uh, kind of surprises me because I remember uh, September 1 it was 113 degrees because I was out building a greenhouse that day. But um, anyway, it's there's a lot of weird stuff going on related to weather, so maybe they're just a little late blooming. But that shouldn't keep you from harvesting and enjoying. Uh, and and if you you know dig the first one up and it is really undersized, uh, then just give them a little bit longer before you start digging. But um, I I suspect you'll find if they've had four months to grow. Um, they are going to be pretty good size. Next year, try to get your seed planted in April, and I can promise you oh. it'll be quite large by now. Uh, they don't want to okay, freeze, great. but they're one of those things you can plant pretty early. By the time you're planting your peppers, it's time to plant your jicama. Okay, great. Thank you. You are certainly welcome, and you have a wonderful weekend. You too. Thanks, Kim. Stay cool. <laughs> I do my best. <laughs> Goodbye. All right, uh, Janie's next, and it's going to be Suzanne and Fidel. Good morning, Janie. Good morning, Bob. Good morning. How are you feeling? Hot, but, you know, it's it's a fun <laughs> day. I, I really enjoy our seminar season because we have so many fun, wonderful people come. And uh, this is the first of fall. We're going to talk about vegetable gardening today. So I'm up, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm <laughs> I mean, up uh, emotionally for this day. I'm, I'm not sure I'm totally awake, but uh, that's, <laughs> as Don and I say, that's the nice thing about radio. You only have to sound awake. You don't have to look awake. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> no, life is good. How about you? Oh, fine, fine. Good. The only thing is, uh, I bought some liquid molasses, uh-huh. and uh, I've heard you say how to use it, but I forgot. Well, liquid molasses is a great stimulant of microbial activity, and it can be used for a lot of different purposes. It can be used just to generally improve soil health, in which case you mix about a tablespoon of liquid molasses to a gallon of water. Uh, it can be used to rot cactus in a field uh, once you've broken it loose from the ground. And in that case, you mix, you know, a couple of cups to a gallon of water. And if you're going to use it to kill nutsedge, you mix about a cup, oh, about half a cup of molasses to a gallon of water and really drench the nutsedge. But for general purposes, about a tablespoon of molasses to a gallon of water uh, you can do that along with liquid seaweed. You can just uh, kind of uh, enhance, uh, say, something like Medina's uh, uh, soil activator, Medina Plus. You can make the fertilizers a little bit more potent. But in general, you're going to be adding about a tablespoon of that molasses to a gallon of liquid. Okay. Now, I've got rose, rose bushes. Mm-hmm. Now, I want to put, I think I heard you say one time, I'm not too sure, that you could put uh, in that uh, sprayer bottle of water, you know, to spray, mm-hmm. that I could put half of molasses and half water. Is that right? Oh, no, that's, that's way too strong. Well, it's probably not going to hurt anything, but that's wasting a lot of molasses. Uh, I would just, uh, 
I guess it would depend on how you're going to set your sprayer. All right, let me back up on that. That may be absolutely right. If you want to set your sprayer for two tablespoons per gallon, there'll be a dial on top of it. You set it for two tablespoons per gallon and then put half water, half molasses, and you will be exactly right. Now, if you had just one of these pump-up sprayers that takes fully diluted material, that would be way too strong. But if you want to spray your roses, yeah, set the dial on top to two tablespoons per gallon and then do half water, half molasses, and you'll be all set to go. Okay, so it won't kill the... The rose bush, if I hit it accidentally. I oh, want... no, 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 no. You, uh, Your rose bushes will love it. Uh, the microbes that benefit our plants are not just in the soil. They're actually on the stems and the leaves of the plants like roses. And that molasses on the foliage is going to make your roses more resistant to black spot. It's going to make them more resistant to aphids. It's going to do a lot of good things. It's not only not going to kill them, it's going to make them feel better. Oh, okay, then then I, I'll do that because I, I don't think I want to be putting two, uh, a tablespoon to a gallon of water and pouring and then doing it. Oh, no, it. no, yeah, uh, spraying it, that's just fine. So mix mix half water, half molasses, and what we're doing is just diluting it to the point it'll go through the sprayer a little bit easier. Set it on two tablespoons per gallon on the top of the sprayer, and, uh, you know, as they say in church, let us spray. Uh, <laughs> get out and be very religious about your gardening. <laughs> I guess you're feeling okay this morning. <laughs> I guess you're right. Why not? You know, it's uh, this world's too full of negativity. Don and my engineer and I were just talking about that beforehand. And with all the crud you've been hearing on the news this week, we need to smile a little bit more. Yes, we do. <laughs> okay. Thank you very much. Okay. You're welcome, Janie. Thank you for calling early this morning. Okay. Bye-bye. <laughs> Goodbye. All right, keeping right down the list, Suzanne is up next. Good morning, Suzanne. Good morning, Bob. How are you? I'm doing pretty well. How about yourself? Well, I just got back from a week in the mountains in Colorado. (laughs) Well, I was was in the mountains of Wyoming the week before, so I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. I did, and I'm still in pain, you know. (laughs) Yes, I have to ask where you were in Colorado. Uh, we stayed in, um, uh, what's the name of that place? Uh, it, right, yeah, I'm sorry. It, yeah, I, I just flipped it. Small small town that's close to the, uh, close to ski areas where we could drive in, out during yeah. the day. Oh, gosh, there's so many fun ones. Breckenridge, uh, Aspen, and Crested Butte, and Gunnison, and Montrose. Yeah, it's, if you're, if you're in the mountains, there's parts of Colorado that's just hot and dry and ugly. But there are also some very beautiful parts, so uh, I'm sure that's where you were. And glad it was fun. I wish you could have brought some of that cool weather back, but one of these days we'll get it. I tried. You know, when I opened my suitcase, I got one whiff and cool. <laughs> you know, one of our big suppliers is up in Denver. We buy most all of our cyclamen and quite a number of our pansies and other things. And uh, they sent me a, a text this week saying... Uh, uh, we've got nice plants if we can send you anything. And I said, well, you send us 10 semis of cool air, and then we can talk about plants. So uh, I haven't seen it show up yet, but I'll let you know. <laughs> right. In oh. fact, that's what my question is today. Yeah. Uh, this is going to be my second winter to grow uh, fava beans, uh-huh. the Windsor, Windsor variety. Right. Um, I'm growing that because I cannot buy them in, in, the, in the store, mm-hmm. and I think they're really tasty. Right. Plus, I know they're going to help my soil yeah. and my garden, too. You're right. 
So I, I, I know that they're a cool weather bean and they require temperatures in the, well, by the time they start setting beans, it's got to be in the 60s okay. uh, during the day. So it is so incredibly hot now. I mm-hmm. know this is not the time to put the seed out. Oh, I don't know. I so, think it is the time to put the seed out because here's a problem. Oh. I don't think fava beans will take frost or a hard freeze. I, um, if they are a true bean, I've never grown fava beans. That's one thing that I, uh, you know, just just have not taken the time to grow yet. Um, but it's you got to look at the length of time. The seed package should tell you somewhere how many days it takes to harvest, and I suspect it's going to be somewhere between 45 and 50 days. And as hard as it is to believe, 45, 50 days from now, we're talking Christmas. And uh, uh, so we need to get those seeds up and growing. And it has cooled off some. I mean, we're not in the 100-plus range anymore, so... I'm afraid I would go ahead and get those fava beans in the ground in the not-too-distant future. There, There's a big, big difference in 90 degrees and, you know, 105 degrees. And let's give those beans about five days to sprout. We're going to be into next week. And they are saying, if you can believe them, uh, upper not, upper 80s to low 90s for highs. So I think you're you're okay to plant your fava beans now. I, in fact, I would strongly suggest you get them in the ground pretty soon. Okay, there's here's some added information for you. My seed packet says 90 days. Mm, you gotta. It's a real long season. Uh, yeah. Beans. Yeah. And that was my experience the last time I grew up. Mm-hmm. Planted sometime in the fall, probably October. Uh huh. And I had tall beans that would not, and we got past New Year's. Uh huh. And they would not. Uh, they would not make beans. I had big plants. Well, crank up your time machine and, you know, make it 30 days backwards, and uh, you will have planted them at the right time. Yeah, if you're going to try for a crop this fall, they, they need to go into the ground 30 days ago. So uh, get them in today and uh, pray that it's a mild winter. Okay, i got one quick question. Yeah. I also have a pack package of uh, herb celery. It's cutting celery. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's the short guy. Right. Uh, and I, in the past, I've heard it, it, it uh, named smallage. Um, I don't know. I, I figure it's got some cold hardiness to it. Just it does. Yeah, it does. Um, your, your only question here, and it's very definitely time to get it planted. Uh, some people will direct seed in the garden, and that's produced mixed results for me. That is one plant, kind of like broccoli and cauliflower, that I like starting the seeds. Get out your egg carton or whatever uh, you're going to start the seed in. I would like to be setting out little plants rather than seeds. But uh, it's one of what we just, as a general lumping things together, we call the leaf celery because it is grown for the leaves rather than the stalks. But um, either, you know, get it seeded in the garden the next two or three weeks or better still, start those seeds in small pots or, you know, whatever whatever way you prefer to start them. But get yourself some little plants that have at least a couple of true leaves coming up before you transplant them into the garden. All right. Good advice. Thanks a lot. Have well, a great day. Welcome back, and I uh, hope we'll be comparing cool weather notes very soon. <laughs> And if you're if you're looking for something to do today, of course we do have our fall vegetable gardening seminar nine forty five over at Shades of Green. Come on over and 
I, when I go to seminars these days or classes and things, I always find if I learn one or two things, it makes it worthwhile. So you're a good gardener, but um, we may be talking about something new today that's not familiar to you. So if you're able, we'd love to see you. Thank you so much. <laughs> Thank you, Suzanne. Have a wonderful weekend. Bye. Uh, Fidel is up next, and then it's going to be Martha. And Good morning, Fidel. Morning, Bob, to you and your all your listeners. Well, thank uh, you. I have a little uh, question. I had planted some uh, birds of paradise uh, probably three years ago. Okay, the Mexican bird of paradise or the uh, tropical? Yes. Okay, okay. Uh, the... Okay. Yeah. And uh, uh, I was looking at them just yesterday, and, and at this stage I only have like three little stems on, on each one of these plants. Mm-hmm. And, you know, last year they, they flowered, but... They seem to be growing very, very slow. And uh, is there anything that I could do to energize them a little bit? Fertilize more and water more. Okay, uh, the yeah, the the Mexican bird of paradise, Cicillopinia. Is yours the orange and yellow one, or is it the kind of green and pink and uh, chartreuse one? No, it's the orange and yellow. Yeah. No, it needs heat. It needs water, and it needs fertilizer. So uh, I'd be watering with something like has to grow or. One of those products, I'd be, I'd be feeding them every two weeks, and I'd be watering them at this point. They will survive drought, but it doesn't mean they like it. I'd be watering them thoroughly twice a week, and um, you should be encouraging some good growth before the season's over. Okay. Uh, question number two, I have a, a rosemary plant uh, that is also three or four years old, and it's already maybe three feet high. Uh-huh. And I recently planted another one in a raised bed that I have over all my rock. The raised bed probably has about a foot of uh, good soil in it. Okay. Uh, and I transplanted it about a month ago, and it just hasn't done anything. It's just standing still. Yep. And I've, I water it uh, probably at least twice a week and maybe sometimes more often. Well, knock, uh, about, knock about 20 degrees off the temperature. Go out and, you know, just... just uh, Shake your fist at the sky and beg for some cool weather, and your rosemary will do a lot better. Plants have what is called a compensation point, Fidel. That's how many, how much energy it takes just to stay alive. And the kind of weather that we've had in July and August and on into September, the compensation point is so high that the plants just have nothing left over to put on any growth. They're expending all the energy that they can generate, that they can create through photosynthesis. They're just using that to stay alive. When it cools off, you'll very start definitely start getting some good root growth. Next spring you should be you should see a real, you know, big surge of growth. But right now those poor plants, uh the past couple of months, they've just been struggling to you know, stay green and, and stay alive. So nobody's seen real good growth on their rosemary or most anything else this summer. Mm-hmm. Okay, my last uh, question. Uh, I planted, recently planted, uh, a crepe myrtle, the ones with those real bright uh, red uh, flowers. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, it's It was short, maybe a foot and a half high, but it had plenty of flowers and everything on it. Well, I transplanted it into this raised bed that I made reference to earlier, uh-huh. and uh, just about all of the leaves have come off of it, uh, and I do water those uh, probably every other day. Okay. Uh, uh, you may need to water every day. I mean, okay. in in the containers in the nursery, we're watering crepe myrtles every day. Um, if it's a big plant came out of a little pot, mm, if it were still out of the ground, I'd probably be watering twice a day. But I think you just, I'd, I'd give them a little root stimulator, 
uh, in the form of Garrett Juice or perhaps a little bit of Super Thrive, they it should perk up uh, if you when you have an opportunity, you just pick up the hose and spray up and down the stems. It'll absorb some water through that. But we just need some cool weather. I don't think you're looking at any big problems. And uh, it's always good to talk to you. All right. Well, let's get back to these phone lines. It's gonna be Martha and John and Lee. And Martha is first. Good morning, Martha. Good morning. My pinches are in a pot, okay, and they have been absolutely beautiful. I walked mm-hmm. out yesterday, and one whole stem looks like you pours water on them, scalding water. Okay. Um, how often are you watering those pentas in the pot? Uh, every about a knuckle deep. Okay. Every time it, I need, you know. I, that you know what you're describing. We most commonly see when they stay too wet. Now, you know, if you're careful about doing it uh, a knuckle deep and watering really thoroughly when you water, um, that, you know, that they, they should be doing fine. Um, it may just simply be the heat. Um, I, it, it, pentas just really don't get any diseases uh, and like I say, the most common thing I see is is when we just keep them a little bit too wet. Uh, just too much water in the soil means there's not enough oxygen. But uh, this is a group of them in a pot, and it's just like yes. one stem on one of them. So it, far. Yeah, it's, and, but, and <laughs> well, let's hope it stays that way. But right. uh, there's always the possibility that that one stem got chewed on by some pill bugs, I'm fighting um, pill bugs by the jillion they get in, and they and you know, grasshoppers. Yeah, and grasshoppers. They the stem can get chewed upon. It can actually, you know, be broken. The birds get in there and start hopping around and looking for things to pull out. Um, if the rest of the plants look good, I'm not going to be concerned. I, I I think it's just damage to one part of one plant. Uh, certainly wouldn't hurt. To give them a little garret juice, a little super thrive, a little has to grow. Uh, they love all of those things. But uh, just, you know, as we talk so often, uh, there's no such thing as too much water, but there's too often. So be sure you're mm-hmm. really flooding it. And if in doubt, uh, maybe let it go two knuckles deep. Because Pentus is one of those plants that it would rather stay a little on the dry side than a little too wet. Especially okay. in the heat. Thanks. And rye, when can I put rye grass in? Oh boy, um, you know, probably just about any time because it's going to okay. take a few days to germinate, and uh, you know, simply with the days getting shorter, with the movement of the jet stream and things like that, it's got to cool off at least a little bit. And you know, like I was talking uh, with somebody just a minute ago, there really is a big difference in upper eighties and upper nineties. And um, mm-hmm. I, I wouldn't be in a rush because, you know, the reason we we put in the ryegrass is to have something green out there in the winter and to have something that holds the soil. And as long as we're watering and fertilizing, our basic turf grasses, zoysia, Bermuda, St. Augustine, whatever, they're still looking good. So I wouldn't be in a rush to do it. But if you said, you know, I'm getting ready to go out of town and I really have to do it before I leave, I'd say go ahead and plant but all things being the same, I'd be figuring on doing it in the next two or three weeks. Okay, last question. Do you know have dates for the San Antonio Tulip Festival? 
I did not know there was a San Antonio Tulip Festival. It will be in the spring. I know that. All right. And I also know that it is going to be on 775 just out of Lavernia. Okay. But <laughs> well, I can't get a date. I'm, I, I, I you know, perhaps the Garden Volunteers of South Texas would be a place to call. You might even call the San Antonio Garden Center, not the Botanical Center, but the Garden okay. Center. And uh, uh, they they are really quite active. They've actually got a, a flower design school coming up this next week. And uh, but um, I, gee, uh, <laughs> of people that I can call, I have no idea. And I can't well, I, to me, tulips are one bulb that if you just really love tulips, plant them. But you look at what the Dallas Botanical Garden did two or three years ago. They planted over 150,000 tulip bulbs. It got really hot really early, and the tulips lasted three days. I'm not that <laughs> fond of tulips. For the money they wasted on tulips that year, they could have taken the you know, their entire staff to Holland to enjoy the tulips over there. Uh, but anyway, um, I, there, there are, now there are some native tulip bulbs, I should say. There are a couple of them. That's that, what uh, I was hoping for. Kind of like the Byzantine glads or little, uh, you know, hardy uh, gladiolus. But I've not heard, but I will certainly, I will certainly keep my ears open and, and look up the number for the San Antonio Garden Center. I don't have it in okay. front of me. But there's some really nice people down there, and uh, they can probably help. I'll look up the number for the Garden Volunteers of South Texas. That's also one of my favorite volunteer organizations, yeah. and they can probably help you find that. Okay. My granddaughter sent me a picture of the a brochure or, or something that she had seen. She's in College Station. Uh-huh. And, uh, she says, we can do this until we can go to Holland. <laughs> <laughs> well. Very good. Well, just be sure, just be sure you, uh, and, and that's the other thing that's so hard on timing because tulips are always going to have a brief floral period. And when that happens, it's going to be so dependent on when we have warm weather. So, man, it takes a brave person to try to guess when the tulips are going to bloom. So good luck on that one. Yes. Okay. Thank you very much. You have a wonderful weekend. Thank you, Martha. Bye. Okay, John's up next, and it'll be Lee and William. Good morning, John. Good morning, Bob. How are you? I'm good, sir. How about you? I'm making it. That's good. Well, the best way to start the day is a friend of mine said it's always better to be seen than to be viewed. It, indeed. <laughs> What's going on? Hey, <laughs> man. What's going on in your world? Well, I've got some uh, uh, good-sized uh, cedar elms uh, in my front yard, and mm-hmm. a couple of them hang over the driveway. We're talking one of them's 19-inch caliper, another one, you know, 26, 27-inch. Yeah. You know, yeah, yeah. Well, these stupid things every year get um, I, what I guess are aphids. Uh-huh. Um, all the foliage is way too high for me to, you sure. know, visually inspect, but the honeydew that's all over my nice, shiny new truck every morning um, from whatever it is, yeah, it's their acromut. It's aphid poop. That's what it is. Yep. Is there anything, I mean, I know the, you know, chemical ways of killing it, you know, malathion, carbaryl, all that stuff, and I've got spray rigs. I don't want to go that route. Right. Is there anything systemic that's organic or not harmful to bees and butterflies and things like that 
that I can get rid of these things, or do I just need to buy a tarp for my truck? Well, you know, aphids are a sign of stress. And mm-hmm. so you can mitigate their numbers a little bit with really, really thorough deep watering. And, you know, you can just tell the saws to just draft your bank account for whatever's in there. But um, uh, a month ago, when ladybugs were available, uh, I'd release ladybugs. Ladybugs are very, very predatory, and aphids are one of the main things they go after. Right now, they're telling us it's going to be mid-October before there are more ladybugs available. But releasing a bag with a couple of thousand ladybugs in it, um, you know, you do it in the evening. You spray some water around first. Uh, uh, Ladybugs eat a huge number of aphids. And just anything you can do to relieve the stress on the trees. You know, you, you say you have good spray rigs. Um, spray with some liquid seaweed, spray with some has to grow, spray with some garret juice. All of those things are going to help your trees overcome the aphids. But now here's one other thing I will throw out there, speaking of shiny new trucks and things like that. Um, and I'm going to talk with Howard Garrett about this a little later this morning. But um, there is a phenomenon which is not really understood. It's not a disease. It's not insects. It's actually a syndrome that they call summer limb drop syndrome. And a couple of trees, and cedar elms are the worst, pecans are the second worst. And um, for reasons unknown to arborists or anybody else, every now and then, doesn't even have to be a windstorm or anything else, a cedar elm will just decide to drop a giant limb. Um, one of our managers at Shades of Green, she had a limb, show me the pictures, probably three or four inches in diameter, cedar elm in her yard that just, the limb came tumbling down and she's seen the same things in a neighbor's yard. Uh, my friends at Edder Tree Care were telling me about, uh, a daycare center where kids had just gone in from their recess period and wham, this big old cedar elm limb just comes toppling down out. And like I say, it's called summer limb drop syndrome. And um, I want to ask Howard if he's learned any more about it. Uh, the arborist I talk to, uh, it's largely a phenomenon that they don't know why it occurs, but they know this hot, dry weather is when it occurs. Bottom line is, if I have a shiny, I have a shiny new truck, I'm not going to be parking it under a cedar elm right now if you have any choice of where else to park it. Because uh, aphid poop can be washed off. A four-inch limb through the windshield is a little bit more of an issue. Oh, sure, yeah. I've... Um... I've uh, made great headway on the amount of cedar elms that are overhanging my driveway in yep. recent years. Um, when it dropped on my wife's old truck, um, uh-huh. about a six-inch limb, that didn't bother <laughs> me as much as when it dropped on my bass boat. Uh, I'm not going to tell your wife you said that. but <laughs> <laughs> Anyway, so you've experienced that, so you know what oh, I'm God, speaking yeah. of. But uh, yeah, yeah, I started waging jihad on cedar elms and just yeah. took a chainsaw and cut down about half of the ones we've got an acre and a half, and I yeah. started taking them out. And well, they're they're an excellent tree. They're one of my favorite trees. But like every other tree out there, they have their share of problems, and um, the occasional you know the occasional aphid uh, in the summer limb drop syndrome. If they're out in my pasture, if they're away from my home, my barns, things like that. You know, I'm really happy to have cedar elms, but I'm I'm not going to park my truck under them this time of the year. Even though mine's That's an old sure. one and not a new shiny one, my 350 <laughs> is my my ranch truck, and I'd be I I would be hard, find it hard to get along without it. I'll put it that way. In, indeed, indeed.
All right. Well, I'll start working on the health of those trees and uh, and uh, get yourself some ladybugs in a couple of weeks. Uh, ladybugs. Yeah, that'll be uh, all right. Best plan. Very good. Thanks so much, Bob. Always a pleasure, John. Thank you, sir. Bye bye. All right, let's get back to gardening here. We're going to talk to Lee and William. And once again, if you've been getting a busy signal, got two open lines sitting up there. So dial 599 5555 to area code, of course. And uh, you just probably get right through. Good morning, Lee. Good morning. How are you this morning? I'm just glad to be here. Glad to be teaching a fun seminar on vegetable gardening this morning. And Sitting here with my great engineer fishing buddy, so other than still being in bed asleep, life uh, couldn't get a whole lot better. You're right. I got a, <laughs> a couple of questions. Yes, you. sir. Well, one thing uh, for your caller previous, uh, I've had a problem with uh, uh, aphids dripping honeydew all over my cars. Yep. Yes, sir. I just lived in this house about eight years ago, and ever since it's been bad. I bought a new car about four years ago and didn't didn't appreciate it, so <laughs> I asked you and some other people what to do, and I cleared the dirt away from the root ball as much as I could, uh-huh. did some deep watering, uh, fertilized more, and uh, for a Band-Aid, I've gotten uh, an annual car wash so I could take it in once or twice a week and have it washed and mm-hmm. looked as good now as it did four years ago. The car uh-huh. uh, and the tree is doing much better. Very good. So uh, those things help. Uh, but I wanted to ask you, I've got green beans. They're pole beans. Uh-huh. And they look very healthy and good. But no beans. And they've got lots of flowers, but yep. no beans. It's the temperature. It's the heat. I have to tell you, I have almost stopped growing pole beans because our summers past years have been so hot, they just don't produce. Now, they'll start, those flowers will start setting and making beans as soon as we knock about 10, 15 degrees off the temperature. But I've gone to almost exclusively bush beans because they don't seem to pay any attention to the temperature. Uh, But the pole beans, I have not found a pole bean variety that consistently sets when we have the high, high afternoon temperatures. So I really don't think it's anything you're failing to do, and you should, unless we just go from really hot to really cold, you should get a fall crop of beans. But you and everybody else are sitting out there just looking at the flowers, looking at the plants, pouring, you know, lots and lots and lots of water on them. But uh, it's it's nothing you're not doing. It's just simply the uh, weather, the heat. Okay. I think I made a mistake. Uh, another one, and that's uh, I planted okra along a concrete fence mm-hmm. in my back back of my house, and it's always hot, and it seems to have helped, if anything, on the okra production. Oh yeah, yeah. But this this year, I thought I moved the okra, and I thought, well, I'll plant tomatoes. They're, they're a <laughs> hot weather crop. Yeah. And three, <laughs> The bottom three fourths looks like it's dead and yep. gone to heaven, and the top fourth looks real healthy. But should I just pull them up and start over? Or? Well, it's too late to start over on tomatoes. Uh, water them, feed them, um, and as we cool off, if we have a prolonged fall, and hopefully we will, you'll probably get at least some more tomatoes. But yeah, move the okra back over there, move the tomatoes back away from that wall because. Okra, uh, okra doesn't seem to care how hot it gets. It just sits there and 
keeps on producing as long as you keep on watering and feeding. But that's sure not true of the tomatoes. So, uh, like I say, it's it's way too late to start planting more tomatoes. We're we're into broccoli, and cauliflower, and snow peas now. But um, just do water feed, maybe spray a little bit of liquid seaweed, garret juice, things like that, and hopefully uh, it will cool off and you'll get some good fall tomatoes from the top fourth of the plants. It still looks good, but uh, um, yeah, it's. <laughs> It would have been much better to continue to grow okra next to that concrete wall. That okra, it won't hurt it to be grown in the same spot year after year? Growing it organically, absolutely not. I was talking to a friend yesterday who's not completely organic, and he's had problems with uh, nematodes, uh, the root knot nematodes, which okra is susceptible to, and they seem to be you know, getting worse and worse, but... In my garden, where I'm using some cedar mulches and staying 100% organic on everything, um, I started out with some nematodes in that garden, and they have, they've gone away. So um, you're doing it the right way. I don't think uh, it'll be a problem at all. Uh, the, the two things that, that really slow down okra, one of them is cottony root rot, and the other uh, are the root knot nematodes. Cottony root rot. Uh, and a healthy organic garden is not going to be an issue. You can always use some actinovate or something if you ever have any cottony root rot show up. But, no, I'm I'm growing okra in the same row. I've grown it in for probably close to 10 years, and uh, this was has been a very good year for okra in my garden. Okay, and last question. Uh, two or three of, of your preferred liquid fertilizers for the garden would be? Well, has to grow plant would certainly be one. Um, the uh, uh, Medina is making a new one patterned after the old John special recipe that they simply call their liquid fish fertilizer. Um, Espoma makes a good liquid fertilizer. And the Fox Farm people is actually under their Happy Frog label. Uh, they make a couple of very good liquid fertilizers and... Uh, um, I, any of those uh, are going to be real good in my book. Is a fish fertilizer good enough for all your liquid fertilizing needs in the garden? I think it is, but I have to tell you the truth. I rotate around, and I'm doing the same thing in the greenhouse. I'll use the Medina liquid fish, and I alternate it with has to grow. I just uh, happen to like Medina products very much, but they're certainly not the only good ones on the market. And I suspect, I mean, our, our ancestors used fish almost exclusively, but, you know, I may, I may love hamburgers, but I'm not going to eat a hamburger every day. I'm going to mix it up with some other things. And so uh, I, you know, I, I, I rotate a bit. I, I'll try. Uh, I do, you know, want things that are either natural or organic, but uh, I'm probably not going to stay with the same fertilizer all the time. I, I like getting a little variety in there. Right. You, you need to keep uh, advertising that uh, your um deal you're doing at nine o'clock this morning or yeah nine 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 forty five this morning yeah the fall right. vegetable because seminar i'm hoping I didn't know about it until you just a while ago when you mentioned well. it and that's a great seminar <laughs> well i've got some new things and um going to talk about it'll be a little different uh some things i'm going to add to it this year so uh if you're available about nine forty five, the coffee's free the seminar's free and i uh, would enjoy your company Thank you very much, Bob. My pleasure, Lee. Thank you, sir.
Thank you. Goodbye. Goodbye. All right, let's go ahead and get William in here for the next break. Good morning, William. Good morning, Bob. Morning, sir. Um, I'm, my question is, what's the latest I can plant zoysia in Bulverde, and what kind of zoysia of all the different kinds would you recommend? And, well, and then that's pretty much it. It's getting dark about 8 o'clock, so I don't think I'd try to plant it after that. <laughs> no. you Are you are you planting it from uh, from sod? There is a seed zoysia called Zeon. I still like zoysia sod, but that's what you're planting? Yes, sod. Hey, yes, yeah. sir. Um, you can do it 365 days a year. Uh, I have to say best times are probably October, November, and uh, that February, March period are going to be the two best, but um, you just do it whenever you find good sod available. I like the thinner-leaved. I do not like the broad-leaved like Jammer. I like uh, Emerald and El Toro are my two favorite zoysias. They do have to have sun. Just don't believe these clowns that tell you they'll grow in the shade because it may grow, but it's not going to be pretty in the shade. It does need sun. But uh, Emerald and El Toro are uh, are my two favorite zoysias. And, you know, I plant them this afternoon or whenever you find good sod. All right. Well, thanks a lot, Bob. Good luck. Remember, don't forget to roll them when you put them down, and especially in this heat, remember that it cannot remain stacked on the pallet. If for whatever reason you're not able to get it all planted the day you get it, spread it out on your driveway, sidewalk, wherever, spread it out one layer thick, because especially in the heat, all sod goes bad in a big hurry. So uh, you got to be ready to get it and get it planted the day you get it. And beyond that, uh, I don't have any problem with putting down some organic fertilizer first. You know, we used to always say you had to wait to let the roots get started. That's back in the days when everybody used the synthetic chemical fertilizers. Smart people these days going with organic, you can actually put some of that down on the ground, put your sod right on top of it, and it'll just get off to that much faster start. Perfect. Thanks a lot. Hey, it's my pleasure, William. Thank you for the call this morning. Uh-huh. Bye-bye. Goodbye. All right, back to gardening, and uh, Craig and Raul are going to be my next two callers, and uh, Craig's up first. Good morning, Craig. Good uh, morning, Bob. Good morning. Um, uh, I am just uh, following up with one of your callers that was asking about uh, a tulip um, farm. Um, I remember running across it on a couple of pages, and I was like, hmm, interesting. So I went back, and I found, I scratched a little information if you're... They'd like me to give it to you. Sure. Okay. I, apparently, this is an operation that has a field, uh, Pilots Point, outside of Dallas. Right, right. Um, and uh, they're bringing one to, uh, it, it's, they call it the, in quotation marks, San Antonio Tulip Field. Um, but it's, it is on uh, 15122 FM 775 in Lavernia. FM 175? Okay. Yep. Uh, yeah. Sorry. Seven seventy-five. Seven seventy-five. All right. Yes. Apologize. And it says early April. Um, it, it's got a five-dollar uh, entrance fee. Uh, it's apparently it's a U pick hmm. um, um, field, and it says something about a that you know if you wish to purchase bulbs, they're two dollars and fifty cents, and they have discounts for seniors, students, and military. Interesting. What does it tell you? What type of tulips we're talking about? No, uh, no it, okay. it didn't. I, I kind of poured through that uh, uh, real quick, uh, quickly looking. I the company, I, I couldn't remember all of it. It was sure. like Pied or P I I P I E D or 
uh, I don't know, it sounded like it was an operation out of uh, Dallas that's had a very successful field up there. Well, I ran it down here. I very much appreciate you letting us know about that. It's, yeah. you know, tulips, tulips, uh, tulips are just beautiful. It's kind of like a rose. Yeah. There's just nothing quite like it, but um, most all of the showy tulips, um, I don't know any way to get around just treating them as annuals because they certainly don't come back well. So if these folks have some newer hybrids or bringing something new to the market, uh, that sounds fantastic. So 15122 FM 775 in Lavernia, and uh, we'll just be watching for it. It's probably going to be sometime in April, you say? Yeah, it just said uh, it's an early April. Okay. Well, I guess they're hedging their bets, too, because they don't know what the weather's going to do. But uh, I really appreciate you sharing that with us, Greg. Thank you. Sure. A uh, quick couple of questions, if I could. Sure. Okay. Um, I have got um, um, a couple of uh, Thrialis and Duranta that have only been in the ground uh, this past spring, doing very well, but I'd like to move them. Uh, when would be the best time? If I had to pick the very best time, it would be just as they begin growth in the spring. Um, okay. How how big have they gotten gotten for you this year? Uh, the thryalis is probably three and a half, four foot tall, okay. and every bit is wide. Duranta, yeah. oh, five five and a half feet. Okay, in each direction. See, <laughs> here's the thing about it: um, you can dig them and move them this time of year. But um, we don't know what the weather's going to do. And Thryalis, uh, some years mine are evergreen, same with Duranta. Some years they freeze mm-hmm. to the ground. And the worst case scenario would be move it and then have it freeze back. And yeah. then it may or may not survive the winter. So I'm going to let them go through the winter. I'm going to give them, well, I don't very few things in my yard get any protection either they they live or they freeze but uh, both of these plants tend to come back out if they're mulched and i do very much believe in mulching so when i first see that new growth when i first see the little bud swelling i'm going to dig them and move them at that time because then they're hardly going to miss a beat they're going to become reestablished very quickly and you got you know 99 percent chance of success that way typically late february early march just kind of depends on the year Okay, fantastic. I can wait. All right, sir. All right. Well, thanks a lot. Thanks for all you do. Well, thank you for sharing your information. We'll (laughs) talk again. Thanks so much, Greg. All right, thanks. (laughs) Goodbye. All right, uh, next up is Raul. Good morning, Raul. Hey, good morning, Bob. Good morning, sir. I'm from uh, from Plano, Texas. From where? uh, Plano, Texas. Oh, Plano. Okay, very good. Yes, sir. Yeah, so um, it's been a while I called. Um, you know, I think it's been five. I started listening to you five years ago. Wow. Yeah, so, yeah, because I know because our oldest, my oldest son is five. <laughs> <laughs> well, then then you got in on about my 30th year of broadcasting. So, <laughs> <laughs> Well, you know, it shows because you've got some great advice well, and great experience you share. What I tell people is if I can just keep you from making all the mistakes I've made, you'll definitely be a better gardener. So how can I help you today? <laughs> yeah, I, um, my uh, front lawn, my front yard lawn, um, which is Bermuda. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've got it's facing southeast. Okay. And I don't know. Does that mean it's going to get more sun than usual or less sun than usual? Means it's going to get uh, more sun in the winter, less sun uh, in the summer, because of course the 
the angle of the sun, the sun, you know, moves much farther south in uh, our orbital path uh, in the winter months, and then it moves back to the north. So um, southern exposure is is a very bright exposure. On a grass that's going to go dormant, it's not really going to make a whole lot of difference that is getting the more intense sun in the winter months. But uh, uh, as long as you're getting plenty of sunlight, uh, Bermuda is one of the best grasses out there for plain O. Do you have common Bermuda or do you have one of the TIFF varieties? I'm pretty sure it's common. I, okay. I don't know how to tell the difference. But oh, I, just one's I, much more dense, and we say shorter internal, internodal distance, but it just means it's a lot denser. The TIFF, of course, is what they use on... Uh, golf courses and oh. things, but common Bermuda is, is I think, without question, the toughest and hardiest turf grass you could have, so as long as you have sun. A, right, and th- th- this is the problem I'm having. I've got two cedar elms mm-hmm. in the front, you know, and they're about, um, about as old as the house, so I would say, you know, 15, 16 years, and they're about, uh, let's just say, two stories tall. Okay. And, and um, the... The grass all around it is fine, except for the grass in between the two mm-hmm. cedar elms. Right. And I was wondering, I, well, I found that I wasn't, the, the watering wasn't as good as it should be. Sure. So I just adjusted that a um, couple days ago. In the meantime, um, what could I put on there to kind of help it along? I've got a few products like uh, Garrett Juice Plus and uh, Half to Grow Green uh, Lawn. Sure. And, um, and and those are those those are great products. Lava sand is going to help maintain more moisture in the soil. But bottom line is that uh, there's no substitute for sunlight. Um, all the fertilizer in the world is kind of like you could eat all the food in the world, but if you didn't have a digestive system, wouldn't do you any good. And long term, and I don't know whether that means a year or ten years, but as those cedar elms continue to grow, as the shade continues to get denser. Um, you're going to have to be thinking about, you know, maybe switching to a ground cover of some sort or a bed or a berm. Uh, there are lots of different options, but, but there's nothing that's going to replace the sun's energy. So, um, you know, any of the products you mentioned are going to help, but you're going to find over time that that grass is just going to start thinning out and, uh, it's just lack of sunlight and there's just no substitute uh, for the sun's energy. So um, at this point, yeah, I'd fertilize it. Uh, um, I, I, you'd be, we've still got in Plano probably six weeks of good growing time, and you have a chance for it to grow. And, boy, you just you hit Bermuda with water. I mean, my Bermuda is in very active growth in the areas that I've watered, and it's totally dormant in the areas that I haven't. But I just am telling you, looking into the future, um, you're not going to have a pretty yard underneath those cedar elms, no matter what you do, unless you, you know, switch to either a more shade tolerant grass or more preferably to a more shade tolerant ground cover flower bed of, you know, there are lots of different things we'll do fine in the shade, but Bermuda is not one of them. I see. Okay. Well, that that's, uh, that helps a lot. I just, uh, you know, you don't want to bang yourself on the head. <laughs> <laughs> it just feels so good when you quit. <laughs> so, so don't don't knock yourself out. Literally trying to get Bermuda to grow in the shade because it's just not going to work. But uh, um, you know, all the things you mentioned will help it. 
And, of course, um, the ideal situation would be the cedar elm drops its leaves before we have that freeze that, you know, is going to put the Bermuda into dormancy. And then all of a sudden you've got more sun, you've got more photosynthesis, you've got more sugar stored, and your Bermuda's happier. But realistically, about the time the cedar elms drop their leaves, we're going to start having those first frosts in Plano, and your Bermuda's going to be dormant for the winter. So enjoy what you have but be looking around look at the shady yards in your neighborhood or as you travel wherever start looking at what people have done where their yards have gotten too shady for turf grass and there are some really good options out there and the good news is that the most of those options take far less water and uh y'all got more water in north texas than we do in south texas but even so it's getting more expensive all the time and scarcer all the time so uh um, you get, you've got some fun planning to do, and long-term everything's going to be great, but just uh, um, just consider that Bermuda temporary resident in the shade of those trees. Okay. Um, one more question, if you yep, will. Certainly. Um, also, uh, in the front yard next to our front door, I've got two planters. They're cement planters, mm-hmm. and um, they're small. They're like uh, 14 inches tall and maybe 16 inches round or okay. you know, diameter. And I've got some periwinkles in there. Right. And I've been adding, um, they've actually been growing pretty well. I've been adding a gallon of water every couple of days in there. Uh-huh. And I was, I was kind of curious, well, how long do you think they would last? And am I watering too much? Or? No. It's, periwinkles are very drought tolerant. But in basically what you have is uh, is just a pot out there. It may be a planter, but um, it's, it's not like growing in the yard. They're going to last until they freeze. Periwinkles are pretty all the way down into the 30 degrees, but when we get below freezing, they'll be gone. Uh, and don't replant too early in the spring because they're real hot weather plants. But uh, uh, periwinkles are among my favorite summertime plants. There's some new varieties out this year. I think you'll see even more of next year. They call the Soiree series, where they have about four yeah. times as many flowers, and the flowers are much smaller. But in containers, my gosh, they're one of the prettiest things I've ever used. Uh, so enjoy them. And um, as the days get shorter, as the light gets less intense, you will not have to water as often because the plants, uh, as the days get shorter, they transpire less moisture. So be careful to feel the soil between waterings. But a couple of weeks from now, you're going to be watering every three days instead of every other day. And by 1st of November, if we haven't had cold weather, you may be down to watering once a week. But Plants should be pretty and continue to flower uh, right up until we get freezing weather, at which point I'd pull them out and put some uh, uh, Johnny Jump Ups or violas or something in there to give you color all winter. Oh, that sounds great. That's a great idea, yeah. Um, I'll definitely do that. I've got um, graduating finally from grad school this uh, December, Excellent. so I'll have a little bit more time after that now. <laughs> Congratulations on that. So what? Uh, Thank you. Well, listen, you're, uh, uh, you're alma mater as well. <laughs> <laughs> very good. Good school. Good school. I, I personally think all you learn in college is an is an uh, organized way of thought because what you learn, other than a few engineering things and maybe a few calculus formulas, if you're find it <laughs> necessary to use that kind of thing, but it just teaches you to solve problems. And I was very blessed to have some. Very good uh, professors, male and female, along the way, and I trust you've you've done the same. So get out there and have a good weekend, and um, say hello to Howard Garrett when you run into him, and we'll talk again. All right. Thanks a lot, Bob. Thank you, bro. (laughs) Goodbye. Good morning, James. 
Morning, Bob. How you doing? It's just another hot, sultry summer morning out there. Oh, all right. It, it is fall now, isn't it? I, I, I kind of forgot that when I stepped out and breathed deeply this morning. Uh, I'm doing fine. How's everything in your operation? Oh, just wonderful. We're just waiting on that uh, that first rain, that rain that we're supposed to be getting here this time of the year, and uh, hope hope it comes on time. Oh boy, you and me both. Uh, it's uh, of course you've had you've gotten a bit of rain. Uh, I think I'm looking at less than probably a oh less than an inch of rain in the past two and a half months. If you want to know the truth, so uh, it can't come too soon for me. I'm hoping that maybe this afternoon or this evening they'll get it right this time. Oh boy, let it rain. Yeah, I called with a couple of questions. Yes, sir. Um, after the the little rain we did get, uh, the naked ladies popped up. Yes, sir. And now they've uh, they've set seed pods. Uh huh. So I'm kind of keeping an eye on them because they're in the area they're going to really get where we run the tillers and different wheelbarrows and stuff. So I wanted to save seed for them. Mm-hmm. How does that work? Well, um, first of all, when we talk about uh, naked lady bulbs. There are basically two of them. One of them is what they call the oxblood lily, Rhodophiala. The other is actually uh, uh, one of the red, oh, the name just popped out of my mind. Um, uh, oh, shoot. Uh, anyway, um, uh, it, is it the one that has the bigger, very, very spidery red flowers, or is it the one that has uh, what looks like kind of a tiny miniature amaryllis? It's got a little white flower on it. Okay, yeah, those are yeah, those are true rain lilies. Then um, they are going to uh, they're going to make a little um, the little seed head up on top of them. Each one of those seed heads typically has four uh, black seeds that are the, a little bit smaller than a peppercorn in there. And um, I, just as soon as that seed pod starts to do, uh, like chorus is what I was trying to think of on the red flower, by the way. Uh, but what you're looking at are the true rain lilies. And uh, you can harvest the seed. You can let it fall in place. But uh, you're going to find usually four black seed on each one of those little seed heads. And as soon as they start to discolor, just get out there and clip them off and uh uh, throw them in a bucket or something, the seed pot will open. Pretty soon you can just sort of pull the chaff off and have the seed left behind, and then repot as you like. Okay, uh, just get the seed started this time of the year, or just wait till spring? Um, in all honesty, I probably would wait till spring, uh, but these things are, of course, very dependent on moisture, and um, they're going to sit there and they're not going to sprout and put on leaves and flowers until we get some moisture. So yeah, I just be planting them in the spring and, um, I don't really, um, you, you best collect some rainwater to raw water them because I'm not real sure the seed will sprout just with uh, well water. Yeah, I got a rain barrel. I, I've, uh, in fact, it's, a, it's full. <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, I got another question for you. I rescued a uh, lily. It was a we identified it at a, as a Saint Joseph's lily. Okay. It's red, but then I took the plant down to the nursery, 
And the nice lady said it wasn't a lily, it was an amaryllis. Well, it's an amaryllis is a lily, if you want to be technically correct. Oh, okay. But, yeah, yeah. Um, I've got them in a nursery underneath a live oak tree. That's where I uh, have the uh, bench and mm-hmm. where I propagate them. But I propagated a few of them the other day, about a week ago, and the bulbs are about as big as uh, billiard balls, and some okay. of them are as big as uh, uh, tennis balls. Yeah. The foliage is laying over. Mm-hmm. And it was standing up, so I'm kind of worried that I did something wrong. Is, is that? Am I doing the transplanting and the separation of the bulbs too early? Is it too well? High? You know, it's you're looking at a bulb that in nature has a dormant season. And if you were to pick the best time to dig and divide it would be after those leaves have died back. You just speeded it up a little bit. You're just kind of forcing them into, forcing them into dormancy a little bit early because if, if that you know bulb is uh, the size you're describing, it's big enough to bloom for you this fall. Now, there are a couple oh. of... They're, they're different amaryllis, so to speak. The giant ones are what they call hippiastrums and they're mainly uh dutch hybrids then there is your good old american amaryllis the most common one is amaryllis johnson eye is the red one and um but it's going to be totally normal for every leaf on those bulbs to die it's just you're kind of wasting your time trying to make nice looking plants out of them this time of year because this is the time that they would be normally going dormant the leaves will be shriveling turning brown and you're not going to get a whole lot of root growth out of them so i would probably let them get relatively dry i would resume watering them sometime around the first of december i'm going to give them six eight weeks uh basically just sitting there i'm going to resume my watering they're going to root they're going to put up spikes of flowers and then they've got that period of having foliage on them after they bloom when they're rebuilding the bulb, when they're producing new little offsets and things like that. But uh, you just repotted them at a time they have foliage on them, but they were getting ready to go into their fall, fall dormant period. So uh, it sounds to me like those bulbs are doing just what I would expect them to do. If you want to go on watering them and fertilizing them a little bit longer to maybe get some root growth going, that's fine, too, but uh, those bulbs are going to have to go dormant before they can bloom again, and uh, this is the time of year they normally start easing into that dormant season. Okay, I'll wait till they uh, turn brown, and then I'll separate them then. That is probably the very best time, the very best way to do it, but, uh, you know, when when you're in the business as I am, the time that it's best to do it isn't always the time when you have the time to get out and do what you need to do. So I don't think you really hurt anything, but given the option uh, a little bit later would have been less stressful for you and the bulbs. Okay, that's I, I don't know what I'm doing, and I've got hundreds of them to yeah. go into one gallon. So oh, great. I'll just, I'll just wait, uh, wait till they uh, start uh, turning brown and yep. then... Put them in the one gallon. Okay, let me let me suggest one more thing to you, James. Where you're dividing them, 
everywhere you can break them apart rather than cutting them apart because they are susceptible to a virus disease. And if you use your knife or your pruning shears and you cut one virus bulb, you'll transfer it to the next two, three hundred bulbs that you cut. So uh, this is one of the places that I would much sooner break them apart than try to cut them because uh, contaminated cutting tools just spread that virus like wildfire. It doesn't kill the plants, but it does weaken them a little bit and the blooms don't last quite as long. So uh, try to avoid cutting. Break wherever you can rather than cut. And uh, ideally, you know, what we do in the orchid business and where you're really dealing with higher dollar stuff is we will sterilize that blade with Clorox or heat or something like that every time we move from one plant to the next. So just keep that in mind because I, I've seen people that without knowing better, they have, uh, they have in, uh, infected hundreds of plants when they just had one or two plants infected to start with. So uh, amaryllis are, are susceptible. I think it's probably a tobacco mosaic virus. And as long as you just break them apart, you're not running the risk of uh, spreading it from bulb to bulb. Does that make sense? Yeah, I just took one three-gallon pot that had a whole bunch of mm-hmm. them in it, and I was just playing around with it to see what was going to happen. Right. I shook the dirt off the roots and then just snapped them apart, like yeah. you said. Yeah, well, that's good because uh, some people that don't have strong hands would start using pruning shears or a knife or a uh, hoary-hoary knife or something like that, and you do not want to do that. I don't think it's a real problem with most crinums, but your amaryllis, I've, I've seen some plants that, that were seriously virus that, uh, and, I, you know, I haven't grown them since uh, we learned that how hydrogen peroxide can uh, sometimes reduce or perhaps eliminate the virus. So, I don't know, we may have a way to get rid of the virus, but uh, last time I was growing that amaryllis johnson i i didn't know about the hydrogen peroxide so best just to stay have it ahead of it not have to deal with it with the the popping soil uh this time of the year we'll order a truckload from new earth uh-huh. uh, and uh just mix it up in the mixer with uh some uh growing green mm-hmm. is that going to be enough fertility for those plants it will be until they really get up and grow one, and then I'll be hitting them uh, with a little bit of liquid. You grow them just the same way you grow a tomato plant, and they'll be very happy. Oh, well, I can do that. All right. <laughs> Got to put it in understandable terms. <laughs> Thanks, Bob. Hey, it's a real pleasure, James. Always good to talk to you. Thank you. Yes, sir. <laughs> Bye. Bye-bye. All right. It's going to be Baron, Robert, Chris, and Glenn, and Baron's up first. Good morning, Baron. Good morning, Bob. Morning, sir. Quick questions. Um, Jerusalem sage. Yeah. Is that a good zero scape type uh, plant? That oh, it's it's oh, it, as long as you can give it at least half day of sun. Jerusalem sage is uh, an excellent plant. It's uh, gorgeous when it's in bloom in the spring. It does. It's not one of those things. It's not one of the sages. It's uh, ever blooming. But uh, yellow flowers in uh, mid to late spring and uh, very very tolerant of a wide range of conditions it does need a fairly sunny spot to grow well and it makes a big plant it wants to be two and a half feet tall and four feet wide so be sure you give it uh, plenty of room okay that's what i needed to know there fig trees um i'm looking for taste over everything okay Uh, what are some good places for uh south you know um between houston and san antonio shiner Okay, and, um, you know, 
some people and uh I'm not real sure why, but, you know, I grew up being told, though, in this area, you always had to plant a closed-end fig, and the only ones of them out there are Alma and Celeste. But having grown a lot of figs over a lot of years, I've never had a problem with the fruit weevils. So I'm like you. I'm going to go for taste. Uh, There's one called White Everbearing that is uh, a really good tasty fig, the old Texas Everbearing, also known as brown turkey, um, I, is a really, really good fig. Now, I have not, I'm kind of on the borderline as, as far as cold hardiness, but a lot of people like the LSU Purple really well, and that is a really big fig, but it's if you're much north of San Antonio, it may have uh, cold issues in the winter, so... Uh, my favorites probably have to be the brown turkey, Texas Everbearing, and uh, the white Everbearing are going to be three of them at the top of my list. Now, Celeste and Alma are or sometimes called Celestial. I've seen it sold both ways. Those are good figs as well. But, man, it's, it's hard to beat the old uh, brown turkey fig, which is also known as Texas Everbearing. Uh, uh, it's just a good, tasty fig, and it produces pretty much all summer long as long as you keep it watered. Yeah, everybody in my area, they only carry Celeste. That seems to be what everybody knows about. So well, that's the extension service, you know. They say, oh, you got to have a closed-end fig, but uh, um, I guess if you're using all their sprays and everything else, maybe you have more problems with uh, the little fruit weevil it gets in the end. But, you know, I'm I'm picking off a fig tree that's probably been growing in that same spot for a lot longer than I've been alive. I'm guessing 80, 90 years on that fig, and it still produces extremely well. And they uh, do they need to uh, cross pollinate with each other? No, no, they they do not require pollination at all to produce figs. Great, so you can have one if you wanted. Absolutely. What the what the max size those would get? (laughs) Fifteen feet wide and twenty, or fifteen feet tall and twenty feet wide. Uh, there is that now I'll tell you there is a new dwarf one out there. I haven't eaten the fruit off of it yet, but it's called Little Miss Figgy. Uh, F-I-G-G-Y, and it's going to be a really compact grower for people that don't have a lot of room. I think this thing's going to top out at maybe three or four feet by three or four feet, but if you're growing any of the bigger figs, um, uh, they're going to they're gonna grow uh, the, the size of a limousine, so to speak. Okay, so, and they take the pruning, though? You can prune yeah. them back a little yeah. bit? Yeah, you, you okay. prune them. You're always going to sacrifice some figs, but when you got a uh, a bush that's that big, uh, it doesn't hurt if you lose a few of them to pruning, a few of them to the birds. You bet. Okay, next. Looking for a small tree, something that won't get over maybe 12 foot tall, 10 foot tall, or if I can keep it pruned up, one or the other. Mm-hmm. And the only thing I'm thinking of that I really wouldn't want to prune too heavily would be something like a mountain laurel. Right. But it's going on the north side of the house, very near the drip line, so... Uh-huh. One spot's not going to get really any direct sun, and the other one's going to get a half a day of sun. What are some, and I've written down a few things that I'm just aware of, mm-hmm. curious if they would make good choices or if you have something, something a little exotic maybe, but I was wondering if an olive tree would work there. Um, in the sunnier spot, olive would be fine. Um, shadier spot, uh, and you can prune it to be a tree or you can let it be a big shrub, but uh, loquat. Uh, is something you could do that would stay within that size boundary. Mount Laurel 
is going to be a real good choice. Your mountain laurel is not going to bloom well in the shade, but it's going to certainly grow in the shade. Now, if you want something that's highly ornamental, and if you can make your soil better, if it's not already fairly good, uh, some of the dwarf Japanese maples are just outstanding, and they are very definitely an understory tree. And uh, a lot of them are going to top out at 8 to 10 feet. And, uh, again, beautiful color spring and fall. Hardy. But uh, a cold hardy, absolutely, they'll go zero or below. Uh, they're not real forgiving if you don't water them, and they're not real forgiving if your soil's just totally awful. But uh, if you're keeping them mulched, if you're watering them, no more than you would any other tree, but just don't neglect them. They, they take a little bit more um, pampering, as it were, but they are sure beautiful trees. I know Howard Garrett's had one in a pot in the same pot for like 26 years or something like that. Uh, so look carefully at varieties. It may be, it's probably going to be mid-fall before you start finding a lot of the dwarf Japanese maples, but uh, uh, there are some just incredibly, many of them are hybrids of what they call Acer dissectum, which has the highly, you know, dissected or highly lobed leaves. But uh, um, that, that's going to be one of the prettiest things you could put in the shade. Now, um, there are other things like the so-called anacacho orchid, more of a bush than a tree, but it's going to do in the half sun area. Um, and, and again, you could, Mount Laurel is going to give you some blooms in the half sun area. Uh, there's some very pretty large hollies, uh, everything from Foster's hollies to, uh, your, um, native yopons and possum haws, things like that, where you get that half day sun. Those are all going to be uh, still other options for a, you know, for a small tree. Um, Redbud red is you're not going to find a redbud that's going to stay to 6 to 10 feet. Most of the redbuds are, we're pushing 15 to 18 uh, when they're mature. I love redbuds as an understory tree, but uh, uh, it's a little bit bigger than, than the size parameter you gave me initially. It's going to get a little bit bigger than what you're looking for, but uh, redbud's a great choice, and You've got a lot of varieties out there. If you're just looking for pretty flowers, it's hard to beat Oklahoma. But um, uh, there's one called Forest Pansy, which has the purple leaves to it. Uh, that's absolutely beautiful and has the pink flowers as well. Uh, the so-called Mexican red bud. Now, that one is going to stay smaller, Circus Mexicana. Uh, it's going to stay smaller, but in my experience, it needs a little bit more sun than the others do, but uh, if you're, for a for a redbud under 10 feet, uh, the Mexican redbud's going to be uh, uh, probably your best choice. What a persimmon. What's a persimmon look like? Um, well, of course, what we call native persimmons in this area are not the ones that produce the big orange and yellow fruit. Um, uh, native persimmon's going to want more sun, really, than I think. Well, I guess you could do it in half-day sun, but it has a gray bark, has a, you know, small uh, kind of a gray-green leaf. But they're really delicious uh, Korean persimmons, also called Asian persimmons or Oriental persimmons. Uh, those are going to make a little bit bigger tree. They're going to make a 15- 18-foot tree, uh, but they're, they're slow-growing. They're very, very pretty, and the fruit is absolutely wonderful. But um, I, I'm just not crazy about this uh, persimmon that grows across the hill country. It's just little persnickety, and it uh, can become invasive if you don't watch it. Okay. All right. Well, that'll get me lined out with some stuff to play with and check on. Yeah, I go check that. them out. And um, 
Uh, there are other choices out there. I, I wish you had more sun. Uh, there's some incredible new crepe myrtle varieties out there, but uh, they're pretty much going to have full sun to do well. But, uh, you know, things we talked about, I think, are good choices, and you call me if I can help you further, Baron. How does the, on the crepe myrtle, does, will the crepe myrtle at least do okay with half sun? No, it needs full sun to do anything at all. Otherwise, you'll be fighting mildew and not very many flowers. Okay. Thank you, sir. My pleasure. Thank you, sir. Bye. Robert's next. Good morning, Robert. Good morning there, Bob. Uh, got a few questions for you just real quick. Um, first of all, I've got a, uh, a lawn that's halfway dead and halfway, you know, going still. I, I planted a 609 buffalo, but my neighbor put some of that carpet grass. It took over that. Oh, and, yeah. Uh, <laughs> well, and, uh, so I just didn't want to fight it, so I just let it go. But I'm, I'm thinking about uh, putting some of that uh, Medina growing green. Okay. On it. Would it be a good time to do it now or later? The best time of year is right now. Okay. And uh, could I put some of that mulch on top of it? or I would do, do compost rather than mulch. Compost? Yeah. Okay. And wait a couple of weeks. I want to see it just 10 degrees cooler, and then mm-hmm. I think compost is going to be one of the best things you can do on any turf grass out there. Right, because last year I put some of that Medina growing green, uh-huh. and, and I told my neighbor to do the same thing, and they did it. They say, hey, they start complaining the grass was too thick to, to mow. <laughs> I'll I take said, that hey. complaint any day. Yeah, yeah. And the other thing, I've got a, I've got a, a whiskey barrel that I have this kind of like tropical plant, and I moved it this past week. Uh, it's close to my, my I've got a big uh, oak tree, mm-hmm. and it had a whole bunch of ants in there. Yeah. And and uh, it's one of those uh, got a big leaf. I, I don't know. My wife cuts them and, and brings them inside the house, and and they'll stay in the water for over a month. You know, okay. and stay green. Yeah. Uh, I, I don't know what what kind of plant that is, but I was going to put put some of that boric acid on the no, on no. the base. No, no, no boric acid. Boric acid kills plants. Uh, okay. Were these are these fire ants? Are these carpenter ants? What kind of ants? What do they look like? Well, look uh, kind of medium size, not real real. But I tell you what, they hurt when they bite you. Okay, that's <laughs> probably the fire ants. Then um, you have two choices. There is a bait that you can just sprinkle around the area. The ants will pick it up. It'll kill them and kill the whole colony. It's called come and get it. Okay, um, and that is the bait. If you want them dead now, mm-hmm. um, what you can actually use is a little orange oil and water. You have to make it very dilute because make okay. it very strong. It'll be hard on the plant. But if right. you put like a teaspoon to a gallon of water and pour through the pot, it, mm-hmm. uh, it'll pretty much kill them all. Um, and, and like within minutes, they'll be dead. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. Uh, the safest... Yeah, okay. yeah, do that with the orange oil or... If you just want to sprinkle a little, come and get it out there. Two, three days later, they'll all be dead. Okay. Uh, another question I had uh, uh, on on these uh, plants I bought a while back. I live here in Timberwood, so I got uh-huh. corral, corral them. The, the deer eat them, right? Exactly. Uh, I've been putting some of that growing green on them, and, boy, it seems like they, they've taken off, you know. Uh, do I need to put some of that Medina Haster Grow on them or I, anything like that? I like the Haster Grow on things in containers. On things uh-huh. growing in the ground, I love the growing green. Okay. Um, so it's uh, they're both good fertilizers. The uh, the growing green's a little easier to use and it's longer lasting. The uh-huh. uh, has to grow produces a little bit faster results, but you need to use it more often. Uh, I'd be doing the growing green three four times a year. I'd okay. be doing the uh, has to grow every three or four weeks. 
every three, four weeks. Okay, real good. Now, uh, I bought also a spearmint plant, which I have in my in my patio. And mm-hmm. Of course, I got not, a lot of sunlight, so I, yeah. I got nothing yeah. but windows. Can I give a cutting to a friend of mine uh, off of it? Or oh, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, there's nothing roots much easier than spearmint. It uh-huh. is. It is so oh, yeah. easy and so tasty and. <laughs> It's uh, yeah. Yeah. I, I call peppermint iced tea mint, and I call spearmint mojito mint. So uh, yeah, a lot of good go. things yeah. to do with uh, spearmint. Yeah. Okay, one 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 last question. I also bought uh, a vintage vine, vintage wine rose mallow hibiscus. Okay. Now it gave out some beautiful big flowers, you know, yeah. But oh. now it's kind of dormant right now. Uh, how what what be the best way? I got it inside my patio also. Uh, and I don't want to put it on in the ground uh, because I, I'm afraid it might freeze, you know. Well, but, uh, no, the mallows can freeze down and come back out. They'll go to oh, 10 really? degrees and come right back out. But wow. uh, it's uh, um, you don't want to keep it constantly wet, but neither do you want to let it get really dry. Uh, the mallows want plenty of sun, so I'm not mm-hmm. sure. Put them in one of the sunnier spots in your patio but uh, don't worry about the winter. It's normal for them to freeze back to the ground. But we had some in pots. First year we were in business, which was 1983 or mm-hmm. 82, 83, we had a five-degree winter. And even in pots, the mallows came out after going through five-degree weather. So cold's not a problem with those things. Okay. Well, well I might put them in the ground then. You know, that might be an idea. Yeah. But, yeah. Keep the deer I'm away from place. me. You, you got a real nice place. <laughs> I, I enjoy going over there, but you're a little bit kind of far sometimes, and I don't get around that much oh, over there. Well. You got a nice place. I, I like to make that that deal you're having this morning, but I, I'm going to see what's going on here. I'm going to try to make it. I well, know. we'd love to have you. And, you know, everybody's got to come to the quarry every now and then or the airport yeah. one. You always just stop by and see us yep. when you do. Yep, real good. Yeah, thank you very much for everything that you do there, Bob. And, My pleasure, uh, Robert. Yeah, that helps us helps us out a whole bunch. <laughs> That's I was what just I'm here for. Put some of that boric acid on that thing because no, 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 no. Boric acid's <laughs> fine inside, but boric acid's a plant killer, and I don't want your my wife mad at you. So, uh, oh shoot, yeah, put me out in the doghouse. Okay. <laughs> Have a great, uh, great <laughs> weekend. We'll talk again. All right, let's get back to these phone lines. Going to be Chris and Glenn, and might have time for one more caller uh, this segment of the show. But let's just get started. Good morning, Chris. Good morning, Bob. How are you, sir? Question about the uh, chili pekin. I've got some volunteers in the side yard here. Okay. And uh, I just wonder when, to, when can you tell when they're ready to pick? I'm trying to get ahead of all these birds that are eating all these peppers. <laughs> I got a couple of baggies worth. Well, you can actually pick them anytime, and they're going to be tasty. Okay. Uh, most people wait until they're red because they like the color. But realistically, um, if you're going to, uh, you know, do any kind of preserving with them, if you're going to put them in vinegar or do all the other things people do with them, um, they lose some of the texture when they are fully mature. But they're 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 at their fullest maturity once they turn red. But uh, they're very flavorful uh, while they're still green. So you can pretty much pick them any time you want now. Uh, if you're going to do, my friend Cappy Lawton uh, told me he just actually whacks them in half, half and smokes them on the grill and uses them in quite a range of uh, different dishes. If you can smoke them like that, 
I would try to let them get close to that full maturity. I'd try to let them color up. But if you're going to use them for chow chow or, you know, making uh, picante sauce or whatever, uh, just as long as they're up to a reasonable size, they don't have to turn color to still be very, very tasty and have all that heat. Well, good, because looking at the bush, there's an awful lot of little empty white cups on this thing. They got ahead of me, so they, they know when they want to pick Oh, yeah. <laughs> at some point when you're in a good nursery, pick up a little sheet of what they call bird netting. It's kind of like an expanded version of the old-fashioned hair nets that people used to wear or still do wear in food service businesses and things like that. But it's not very expensive, and you can just spread it out over the top. It won't stop the squirrels because they'll go underneath it, but it'll sure stop the birds. And uh, what what I would do, you know, your chili pecan's rarely going to be more than a couple of feet tall, but uh, I would take and just, you know, take a piece of rebar or, you know, a stake or something like that and just push down in the ground and then just kind of drape this stuff over the top you probably have to put a piece of string or wire or rubber band or something like that so it doesn't slip down over the rebar because little openings in it are probably three-quarters of an inch. But um, I would do that and just kind of make a little teepee over the top of the plant, and that will keep the birds away without interfering with the growth of your peppers at all. Yeah, will do. Thanks a lot, Bob. Well, it's my pleasure. That's what I'm here for. <laughs> Thank you. Bye. Okay, and a happy Saturday. You do the same, sir. Bye. Bye. All right, let's talk to Glenn. Good morning, Glenn. Good morning, Bob. How are you this morning? I'm great this morning. How about yourself? Good. I'm doing fine. I'm over here in Brenham, and I've got some peach trees that planted out here, and I've got like 10 of them. Okay. About uh, about seven of them are doing fantastic, and the other three are not doing real well. And uh, I went to a place, and they told me maybe to put some... Um, uh, has to grow and, and mix it with the, the, the Super Thrive together and put mm-hmm. a little tea concoction and put it in there. Sure. And here recently, I've noticed I had just like on one of them, the, the whole tree looks almost dead, but on one of them, I've got a little bit of growth coming out, just one little shoot of uh, green growth. So from I the base or from the top? But, well, it's actually about midway up the top okay. of the tree. Okay, so it's There's above the graph point. Trees. Yeah, Yeah, and they're three-year-old trees, so... Uh-huh. You know, I've been trying. I've not produced anything off of them yet. I'm trying to get the root base started. But um, the I'm, the other two, uh, one of them has a little bit of green on it, but the other one's just you know dead dead. I'm wondering if I need to prune those back. That looks like the the, the dead part of it is. Now they lost their leaves in August. I was up in the mountains having a good time, but I have mm. a drip system. Yeah. But um, I'm just wondering if they got too hot or or something. Well, heat heat shouldn't bother them, but. Uh, problem with drip systems, unless you're running them three hours, four hours at a time, you're not getting the water really down to the roots of those peach trees. Now, I would, you know, I would certainly look at the root flare. Unfortunately, a lot of people that haven't learned better still bury those peach trees almost to the graft point. But sometimes the graft point needs to be six inches out of the ground because that exposing that root flare is very, very important. Um, I'm, you know, I, I have no problem with sticking a little bit of uh, super thrive in along with your has to grow or other good liquid fertilizer, but the kind of yeah. summer we've had, I'm going to, I'm going to guess most of your problem is just your, you may be watering often enough, but I doubt if you're watering deeply enough to really give yeah. those trees what they need. I got you. Now yeah, you I can prune deadwood out of them any time, uh, during the dormant season when the leaves are off the trees, 
Uh, it is best to go through and basically the first year you can actually prune and you know work on the shape of the tree. After that, you're going to thin those trees out absolutely every winter. I think that's just mandatory uh, to get good growth and good production. But right now, I'm most concerned to be getting those root flares exposed and try and support that root system. Yeah, that's what I'm trying to do as well. I've got a good base moss bed, but moss around it and everything like that. So, yeah. and uh, you know, I've I've got this drip system, you know, dripping probably three, four hours every every other day. You know, so hopefully it's getting enough. We just got about a quarter inch rain yesterday, which is a good well blessing over here in Branham. So yeah, and and there's nothing like rainwater, but. Uh, um, you may be doing it a little more often than you need to, but, uh, at some point, I, I mean, you're in decent soil. So those tree roots are down two, three th- feet, three feet. They're well down into the soil, but that old, that old clay you've got over there, it's sometimes hard to really get it properly moistened. So, uh, uh, I always tell people there's no such thing as too much water, but there is too often. So, um, and any of the and and just when you're in town, I just got back from Wyoming, so yeah, I know about going off to the mountains to escape the heat. But when yeah, you're there, you <laughs> but uh, grab a hose and just spray moisture up and down the trunks, the limbs. Uh, they will absorb absorb a lot of moisture directly through the bark, and it'll really help help them get off to a good start. Well, good. Good deal, though. So uh, that you don't think I'm hurting them with all that uh, that hescrow and that. Uh, I wouldn't be doing it more than once a month or so, but no, I think they'll love okay. you for it. Good. Well, thank you for your help. Appreciate it. Always a pleasure. Oh, wait, one more, one more thing, Bobby. Okay. If you a chance, M- mustard greens. Uh-huh. Uh, is it about time to plant them right now? Yes, sir. It is. Uh, most years, I'd say absolutely. This year, it's so hot. Um, but I think I think you're still okay to plant them. Sure, too early on leaf spinach, but mustard. Greens, yeah, I'd I'd plant them as soon as you get a chance. Yeah, we got a scoop of seed yesterday, and good night. Those seeds are little, so <laughs> man, um, you got enough for an acre of mustard greens. I hope hope you like mustard yeah, greens. <laughs> oh yeah, you bet. So I'm just going to plant them out there in the garden this year and see how they do. Thank Sounds you great. Your You're sure welcome. Great, great show. Thank you, Glenn. Bye. All right, back to the phone lines. We'll finish up this hour with John. Good morning, sir. Hey, good morning, Bob. Thanks good for morning. taking my call. Thanks How for coming. Doing? I'm good. It's going to be a nice good. weekend, even if a little warm, and keep your fingers crossed for some moisture. Oh, I've been praying all morning long that we'll get a little shower this weekend. Well, I'm, I'm in George West, and we okay. need to get that down Yeah, there, you so. need it as much as we do. Yes, it's very dry. So I I had some sweet potatoes uh, that started sprouting on my counter this uh, earlier this year, and I planted them, and mm-hmm. I've made some incredible vines. But I've never grown them. My question is, when do you know when to harvest those things? You know, you're only going for size. It's uh, potatoes don't ripen. Sweet potatoes don't ripen. And uh, they taste exactly the same when they're the size of a golf ball as they do when they're the size of, uh, you know, watermelon. So um, if did you plant them, what, April, May, something like that? Um, Probably closer to May. Okay. All I can really tell you is start probing around, and this is the problem with sweet potatoes compared to Irish potatoes. Sweet potatoes, I mean, your your regular redskins and things like that, they're always right at the base of the plant. You know exactly where to go digging for them. Those sweet potatoes can be anywhere within about a 10-foot radius. And so I actually grow sweet potatoes in one of these uh, bag beds. It's about six feet across and about 18-inch sides, and that way I don't 
I'm not digging up the entire yard Fine. trying to find the sweet potatoes. So um, the nice thing is they're not very deep, so you just kind of start, you know, probing around uh, and and see how big your potatoes are. You can harvest them at any size, and I've seen sweet potatoes that weighed 40 pounds, but I can't imagine, you know, trying to get those into an oven. But uh, if yours have had all summer to grow, and if you've watered and fertilized, you can probably start digging any time. There's no rush. You know, they're just going to sit there and get bigger over time. All right. Great. Um, one other question. I know you're getting ready for Howard. Is um, I planted a bay laurel, and uh-huh. um, part of the tree seems to be dead and brown. Part of it seems to be nice and green. Um, any thoughts on what's going on there and what I should do for it? It's gotten a little too dry at some point. Once they are really well established, I've got one that hadn't been watered in 10 years and is beautiful. But that first year or two in the ground, you've got to be very, very regular with your watering. And I'm sure it's just got a little of the, over this hot, dry summer, but it will come out of it. So should I trim out the dead? Yeah, it'll look a lot nicer if you do. And we're going to start out with Bernie. Good morning, Bernie. Good morning. Good okay. morning. I, over, I overslept. Uh, you may have already answered this question. But uh, I, you said to get corn gluten meal to uh, fight the weeds, and I did, and the bag says just apply in spring. But I thought you said apply it now. Well, it's uh, you can apply it any time. Um, what I've been talking about more is a pre-emergent. It's just the fact that good compost, you know, works as a pre-emergent, and it's much longer lasting. The problem with corn gluten meal uh, or any other pre-emergent, but the problem is that, contrary to what a lot of people think, uh, pre-emergents do not kill the seed, but when the seed sprouts, the pre-emergent stops it from forming a root system, so it just basically dehydrates and dies. The problem with uh, corn gluten meal is that it breaks down. Uh, It's actually a good fertilizer, and your soil microbes are going to work at breaking it down, so it's only going to remain effective for 30 or maybe 45 days at most. So the timing of application is a really critical thing, and you know with those first fall rains, we tend to start getting things like dandelions and uh, henbit and some of those other cool weather weeds really start sprouting. So um, it's uh, not much is going to happen until it rains, so I'm not going to be rushing to be putting any corn gluten meal out. But it is just as effective in the fall as it is in the spring. It just targets a little bit different group of weeds. That makes sense. That makes sense, and I'll wait for a rain prediction there. And if you don't have weed problems, uh, you know it's still it's still a fairly good fertilizer. And but for grass and things like that, I still think you know half an inch or so of compost over the top does as much as any pre-emergence. Plus, it does so much more. It's a lot more work to put out than putting out some pre-emergent, but. Uh, as always, you know, whatever works best in your garden is the best thing to do, just so long as it's not toxic. Okay. Okay, great. Thank you. Well, I appreciate the information. Well, it's my pleasure. I sure appreciate the call this morning, Bernie. Uh, next up is going to be Sue. Good morning, Sue. Good morning. That was not a very long wait, was it? No, it was great. Very short. <laughs> How can uh, I help? I am calling with two quick things. One is I was in Brenham this last week, uh-huh. and my friend had a tree planted in her bed 
that was um, something blueberry. And no. it was a very, oh, you know it? It's They call it Japanese blueberry. It's not really a blueberry, but uh, it's it's a an upright, shrubby plant. It can be a, a tree if you trim it that way, or it can okay. be as a shrub. Now, I will tell you that um, they are not especially cold-hardy, and a lot of them were really damaged last year when we get that real early freeze before we'd had any time for them to harden off. So uh, if you drew kind of a line from San Antonio to Brenham to on over to just north of Houston, anything above that line, I think you're going to be pretty susceptible to uh, winter damage. And even below that line, that occasional really cold winter that we can have, uh, Japanese blueberry is one of the things that's going to be damaged by it. Now, when you say damaged, do you mean like um, <laughs> it loses its shape or it is killed? Uh, that all depends on how cold it gets. At, okay. uh, you know, much below 20, it's going to freeze back to some extent, which may very well alter its shape, its shape in a not-so-good fashion. I'm right. afraid that if it gets, you know, much below 15 and certainly down into the single digits, it could certainly be killed. I, my my old friend and mentor, Altum Grimm, I used to ask him about a plant and that I didn't see very many of. And I said, uh, you know, how good a plant is this for this area? And Alton always said, well, do you see any big ones around, any old ones? And I said, no. He right. said, well, that's, you just answered your own question. If it was that yeah. good a plant, it'd be everywhere. And that's sort of the way I feel about Japanese blueberry. It sort of came okay. into the commercial production world here probably about three years ago, and it's a beautiful shrub. But just be aware that it's uh, it's one of those things. Uh, and, of course, it'll be more cold-hardy on an organic program. But if it gets real cold, uh, it's going to suffer. Yeah, and I'm in Bernie. So I'm yeah. even further. Um, another quick question. I am wanting to do a cactus bed, and I'm looking at these prickly cactus, wondering how in the world do you plant these in the ground without getting stuck? Well, uh, again, I'll go back to, and uh, if you've lived in Bernie for a long time, you, you might even have known my friend Alton Graham. He, he, he's sort of a hero at a while back, they gave him six months to live with cancer, and he only lived 34 years instead. So, right. But Alton taught me about handling big prickly cactus, and we would just take a you know about a four-foot length of old garden hose and yep. wrap that around the cactus and never, ever you know put a hand on the cactus itself, but use the garden hose to lift it, to maneuver it, to pull it upright while we pack the soil in around it. And uh, that is, you know, by far the safest way. Uh, they make some gloves. Uh, they're actually made for handling toxic chemicals. But the coating on the glove is called nitrile, N-I-T-R-I-L-E. And uh -huh. it is uh, for those little, the little tiny thorns are called glochidia. And I hate them worse than I do the big thorns. Right. And right. your nitrile gloves uh, are totally glochidia proof. And you can actually pick up prickly pear and things like that. And rarely will you ever have a spine go through to the inside of the glove. So uh, those are two things. And if you did a combination of handling them with a length of hose and wearing nitrile gloves, I think you'd probably be pretty much 100% safe. Now, one thing about a K2 
cactus garden or two things about a cactus garden. I always would recommend a raised bed to ensure perfect drainage because, uh, you know, we can move into time having a week of solid rain and all the Ocotillo die and a lot of those arid plants, uh, xeric plants, uh, if their roots stay too wet, they simply will not survive. So even in a cactus garden, you have to be careful what you plant, and a raised bed is the best place. And if you're just out looking at interesting-looking plants, there are a number of plants that look like cacti, but they aren't. They have a milky sap. They're actually members of the euphorbia family, which occupy the same environmental niche in the old world, principally in Africa, that the cacti occupy in the new world. And euphorbias are not cold-hardy. And there are many of them that, if you didn't know looking at them, you would think that they are cactus, but they, they're they not going to tolerate a freeze outside. So be okay. sure that in, in your cactus garden, and uh, cactus gardens can be beautiful. If you're ever in Phoenix, go to the Desert Botanical oh. Garden and see some of their I, neat things. I have been there and i love it yeah but just uh there are a lot of there are a lot of fun succulent cacti like plants big thorns and everything else that are actually euphorbias that uh they'll be dead at 30 31 degrees so don't want to see any of those uh grow them in pots outside so you can bring them in but don't put any of those in the ground in the ground okay great that's what i needed bob have a great day thank you you do the same good questions and thank you appreciate it Sue. bye-bye Right now, we're going to finish up the show talking to Robin. Good morning, Robin. Good morning. Good morning. I have a lantana uh, in a place where we've had lantana for several years. Okay. And they bloomed like crazy. Uh-huh. And this year, it hasn't bloomed. And we wondered, we're treating it just like we always did, and we don't know why. Well. It, it looks healthy. Mm-hmm. No blooms. Mother Nature's not giving you any help this year. Uh, Mother Nature normally supplies us with at least some summertime rainfall. And um, there are a couple of things happen. Lantana wants plenty of water and plenty of fertilizer. And I suspect if you will just step up both of those, you'll get lots of blooms this fall. The other thing is when it's hot and dry... There is a blasted little caterpillar that's, oh, maybe three-sixteenths of an inch long, just almost minuscule, that gets in and eats the buds off of the lantana before they can open. And uh, for some reason, hot, dry summers, it seems to be, you know, worse than other times. So three things I will suggest. Mm -hmm. One, and I would spray the lantanas only, not your whole garden, but I'd probably spray a little BT. I would increase your fertilizing. I'd be feeding at least, oh, once every 10 days to two weeks. And I'd be giving that lantana a good, thorough watering every four or five days. And I'll bet you in less than a month's time, you're going to be up to the flowers you're used to. Okay, we will try that. But, it, you know, it's kind of strange because there's other lantana uh, in beds um, not too far away. And it's blooming. Well, uh, tell me one more thing. What what color yeah. are the ones that are not blooming well yet? Uh, the pink and the yellow. Okay, well, they should be in bloom. A little more fertilizer, a little more water should have flowers. Yeah. The trailing ones, the purple and the white, they're always a little later to bloom into the fall. But you uh-huh. increase the water, you increase the fertilizer, and let's talk in two weeks and see how they're doing. 
Okay. Thank you so much. You're welcome, Robin. Thank you. Goodbye.